Happy New Year, everybody. Welcome back to the MLB Marathon podcast. We took a little bit of a hiatus to enjoy the holiday break, overcome whatever flu bug was going around, but we are back in action tonight. Thank you so much for joining us. And alongside Andrew Kahn, I'm Jake Slobodnik. And this week, we have a lot to talk about. Obviously, missing a couple weeks, we'll do that to you. We have a loaded itinerary tonight. So uh, grab, grab your favorite snack, grab a drink, and settle on in as we talk some things. Andrew, uh, it's been a while since we last spoke, at least on the podcast. I think last time we did was back in 2022 when you joined um, Noah and I. So welcome back to the show. How was your uh, holiday season? Uh, good. I managed to avoid the uh, the bug that was going around, thankfully. I know some some people weren't as fortunate, but you know, happy, healthy, restful little break and ready to get to get back going. I can't believe you were one of the few that actually avoided the seasonal flu bug. It seemed like it affected pretty much everybody, but good to hear that there was uh, good health all around and you enjoyed your holiday season. And I believe um, on behalf of both of us, I'm going to express to you listening, you know, I hope you had a great holiday season as well. And, you know, we are very, very close to baseball season. Pitchers and catchers will report before you know it. Uh, the NFL regular season just ended, so that's always a good sign that baseball is on its way. But there's still a lot of debates in terms of, you know, what's going to happen when baseball season actually gets here. And one of the big things that has been a hot-button topic over the past couple of months has been Carlos Correa. Uh, the initial report surfaced that uh, he was going to be a New York Met. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, let's back pedal even further. He was going to be a San Francisco Giant. That fell through. Um, then now the New York Mets are swooping in on him, but it's that lingering medical problem that uh, the Giants saw that they didn't, you know, it's kind of causing a rift here. And uh, it's been reported by John Heyman, who I'm not a big fan of, but uh, it, it's it was reported by Heyman that it was a lower right leg concern that's kind of hindering Carlos at this point. And it's pretty much the big cog in this whole um I guess the standstill for the Mets and Correa to finally reach an agreement. And one of the things that I keep hearing, and it's not just on the forum base, but also it's tossed around at the professional level too, is that he could possibly go back to the Twins despite his medical concerns. And Andrew, judging by your profile picture on uh, Spotify Live, you're a huge Mets fan. So I got to get your take on this first. With all these medical concerns that's sort of hindering Correa, do you think that it's going to you know, cause him to maybe fall or cause uh, Steve Cohen to maybe fall back on the deal, not bring him on. Or do you think he's still safe to spot? Um, I think first and foremost, Correa and Boris are focused on the New York market. Um, you can kind of tell that Boris is very keen on, on keeping a positive relationship with Cohen, given that, you know, he's talked about him in positive light. He's kind of used Heyman as a bit of a mouthpiece to get his message out there. And Cohen has also done the same with Heyman, giving him a couple insider details that you know we haven't seen Cohen do with with other uh reporters um but I think I saw today Bowden Morosi and Steve Phillips think that the deal gets done by the end of the week but we've also you know we heard that last week you know um I think Minnesota is his primary fallback option uh they seem to be comfortable with his medical from last year as well as apparently he took their exit medical obviously because he was leaving you don't know how extensive it is but they have a barometer on his health and what long-term issues that ankle has, you know, going back from 2014 to however long they want to, you know, offer him a 10-year deal, let's say. But I think Minnesota is the likely fallback option, but I still think he ends up, you know, in New York. You know, one of the things that really encapsulates my mind a little bit is why Minnesota still wants to be that fallback piece. And, you know, whether you're a singular person or maybe even a franchise like the Twins, it's never good to feel like a plan B, but it seems like they don't mind that. And rightfully so. I mean, Carlos Correa is that you know, superstar shortstop that really everybody kind of wants. But it, it baffles my mind that the Twins want to be that plan B and almost like, you know, it's okay if we take a backseat to this. And another thing that really baffles me is the fact that they're holding out for as long as, you know, with, with all the things that are coming out, including Boris being that mouth or um, Heyman being the mouthpiece for Boris, pretty much saying that they want to keep stay in the New York market. I'm very confused as to why the twins still feel like they have a chance. Do you like, I'm going to get your thoughts on this. Why do you think that they, they're okay with being a plan B they're okay with being a settling option. And why do you think they're holding out until there's ink to paper? I, I mean, they've been pretty quiet this offseason. They they signed Vasquez uh, to a three-year deal and Gallo to a one-year deal. Aside from that, they really haven't done much of note. 
Um, I think they kind of feel like this is their only shot at retaining another, you know, superstar talent because clearly they're not attracting them via free agency. You know, Vasquez is a nice player, not a superstar. Gallo's, you know, a reclamation project. So who knows what you'll get from him there, but they're also shopping a bunch of their current players. So I think for them, it's more like a, you know, they don't have another choice in order to get that marquee name to pair with, you know, the Buxtons of the world. And, you know, they're pretty decent, I would say, pitching on the front on the front side of the rotation. But I think they kind of have no choice but to be that fallback option for whatever is left out there. So let me ask this: In terms of the Twins, do you feel like they've had this whole offseason has been somewhat of a missed opportunity because they've been banking on Carlos Correa? I'm not sure if they. I mean, they made him a great offer, right? Let's be honest; they they offered him the. The biggest offer in franchise history, I believe it was over $100 million above what Maurer got. So they clearly had to think that right. they had a good shot at him. Uh, obviously, the Mets and the Giants, their offers went you know, way above and beyond. I want to say $50 million more about. But clearly, you know, Baldelli loved him. Buxton loved him. The, he seemed to like the city from what he's saying. So apparently they do think they are a legitimate option because of the familiarity at least. And that's good to see from a club like Minnesota, especially in a division that's maybe not as strong as, say, like the NL or AL East, the NL or the AL West. Like they, they know that they can be competitive, but it, it kind of, I don't know, it throws me for a loop because I feel like, you know, maybe if they didn't focus all of their attention on Correa and maybe focused on some of the other either mid to upper tier free agents, they could have built still a quality team that has postseason aspirations. And I know it's different whenever you, you know, sort of weigh the apples with the oranges and say, well, Correa is a for sure superstar versus maybe, uh, you know, like a handful of players on the free agent market or maybe even the trade market that you could have attracted to Minnesota and build a star team there. It's it, it, it baffles me. But um, I also want to talk about the other team that we mentioned with this whole sweepstakes for Carlos Correa, and that's the San Francisco Giants. And, and you know what's what really shocks me about this is if Minnesota feels that they can still be in the sweepstakes, even when pretty much all odds are against them and all odds are towards the new Mets in terms of signing Carlos Correa, it, it makes no sense to me why the Giants didn't sort of pursue that too. And again, we could always attribute it to the medical issue, the r- lower right leg concern. I, I love the quote there. Um, but I, I want to get your thoughts. Do you think that maybe the failed deal with the Giants was due to something else? And I, I know there's been speculation for weeks about why the deal fell through with Correa and the Giants. But seeing that Minnesota, you know, is kind of staying in the race for him, it gives me hope or it gives me it gets my thoughts going. Maybe the Giants could have been in on him, too, for the long run. Do you feel that they had a chance or do you think that the, that them pulling out was, uh, you know, pure, I guess, shenanigans and the injury concerns was all smoking. You know, their, their off season on paper, let's you know, without Correa isn't bad, you know, with Correa, it would have been a pretty damn good off season. They added Hanniger, retained Jock, got Comforto. Uh, they added some arms in Manaya stripling. And um, I believe it was Rogers. Their off season hasn't been that bad. If you add a marquee name at Correa, their off season, Pretty much, you know, it's it's a tier above where they are now. You know, you could put them firmly in the top five for winners if they were to lock in the Correa, which is why I think they they should still be circling the wagons on him. You know, granted there was ob- the obvious concern around the medical, and you know maybe Correa has some sour grapes over the fact that his family was at the hotel. They were about to get ready, they were dressed, about to step into the press conference, and boom, it was it was canceled. So maybe there there are some sour grapes on his side, but if I'm them, I'm still trying to grab him and. You know, obviously there is the medical issue and maybe a bit some cold feet that we heard on their side and some disorganization in the front office in regards to if, you know, who and if they wanted him as much as some other people did. But if I'm them, I'm firmly going going in to see, you know, if they can grab him last minute because you can slide Crawford to third, you can platoon him with Flores, put in Correa at short. That changes the dynamic of their lineup and gives them a shot at the wild card, in my opinion. Yeah, and I don't disagree with that. And I think that they, you know, just to, I guess, put a little frosting on this cake, like you said, if they would have signed Correa, it would have been perfect offseason for the San Francisco Giants. And that's not to take away that they're, like you said, their offseason has been bad. It's actually been 
very, very bountiful. And a lot of people will look at the guys they brought in and think, oh, well, they're not, you know, you know, they're not your typical stars. So it doesn't make for a good offseason. But you look at where the Giants were last year and some of the guys that they brought in, they brought in a lot of serviceable people, like you said, Sean Maniah and Ross Stripling. And yeah, it would have been nice to bring in that for sure five star player in um, Carlos Correa. But hey, things happen, and who knows? Maybe they can make a surprise run and surprise everybody with the team that they got this year. It's always going to sit in the back of my mind, though, that it's kind of questionable how they didn't go, you know, keep pursuing him like uh, maybe like Minnesota did. It's it's like Minnesota is like that scorned ex that always thinks that (laughs) that they still have a chance with this uh, one guy or girl. You know, they they keep following them for years on end and think that, hey, they're going to turn around someday and they'll be back. They always come back. And I feel like that's what it's like here. But um, I, I guess to put it lightly, I, I'm a strong believer that the Mets will lock him up. There's no doubt about that. If they're if both if all the sides and all the pieces are coming together, they want Correa in New York. Boris wants him there. Correa wants to be in New York. Uh, it's it's it would be shocking that if it didn't happen. Um, I feel bad for Minnesota because I feel like this is all false hope, but who knows San Francisco. I think they could have probably had more dogs in the fight if they tried a little bit more, but to each their own. Now you mentioned uh, when we first started talking about this subject, a lot of media personalities are sort of speculating when things are going to finalize and the dust is going to settle between Correa and the Mets. So let's get our, let's get our takes a little bit, Andrew. I'll start with you. When do you think that, Correa is officially a New York Met. I will say by thir- by Friday time, the deal is done and he's in New York. Um, it, it's, I feel like Cohen likes making these splashes when there's either a big event just happened in the sports world or something is about to happen. Like tonight, for example, we have the big, you know, the football game, right? I feel like, you know, tonight's not the night for an example for for a move like that. You know, to announce that because he wants the back pages. He's that type of flashy guy. Whether it's his art collection, his real estate purchases, I think he wants to be the talk of the town on New York in New York or nationally. So I think late Thursday, so we get the Friday rush in the news, or sometime midday Friday, so the Mets become the big news heading into the weekend. I like it. I like it. And we should preface to our uh, listeners. We're recording this Monday night around 8.06 Eastern time. So give or take, Andrew thinks they're going to wait till the end of the week. I'm going to say something tells me we're going to see a really weird official signing and it's going to be a passing bomb. I feel like we're going to see something like we saw names slipping my mind right now, but you'll, I'm sure you'll pick it up once I describe it. I think we're going to see it like Wednesday night around 11 p.m right when everybody goes to bed and it's going to shock the entire world. I don't, I'm kind of with you that they want to strike while the, or, you know, strike when everybody almost has their guard let down. But, you know, I feel like with a, with a move like this, with as much drama and as much storyline that's been behind it, I feel like Wednesday night, middle of the week, nobody would expect that at 11 o'clock. Like, uh, like the, the Zander, I think it was the Xander move where it happened late night. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think yeah. that's, I think that's it. Yeah. That's, that's the name that's slipping me, but, I'm picturing a I'm Wednesday night, 11 p.m. We're all settling into bed, waiting for work tomorrow. We're going to get a notification on our phone, breaking. Sources familiar with the deal tell ESPN that the deal's finalized. You know, essentially paraphrasing a pass and tweak. Because good God, he writes an anthology every time he tweets. But <laughs> he uses all those characters. <laughs> but hey, he's a he's one. That's why he's one of the best, if not the best. Um, so. It's it's going to be interesting. I can't wait to see. Hopefully, this actually does. You know, it becomes fruitful throughout the week. I'd love to see Correa in a Mets uniform. I'm sure you would, and I'm sure a lot of people would as well. Um, so, with that being said, let's move on. We got a lot of news briefs to talk about. Just going to highlight something, and we never we never never love to talk about this sort of thing. We never like to talk about this sort of thing. In fact, we kind of wish it was the opposite. Uh, but I'm sure the baseball world has heard already. Uh, White Sox reliever Liam Hendricks announced he was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. That That's a tough blow, and I speak on behalf of all of us and those listening, uh, relaying best wishes to Liam and his family. This is obviously a trying time. I think I read somewhere that 
uh, he actually caught it early enough to where it's very treatable and it's not like it's going to be a, you know, a long road of recovery. So that's a good thing. And hopefully it stays that way. Hopefully he's able to recover quickly. And uh, this is, you know, just a little blip in his career, but yeah, we all relay our best wishes to Liam Hendricks and his family. Uh, another thing, Nashville stars uh, around, I guess, uh, MLB, if you want to call it, because there's speculations that this is going to be an expansion team since Nashville is the favorite for it. Hired Don Mattingly as a baseball advisor in the group led by Dave Stewart. I like this move, especially for a prospective team. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of it. Um, I read that they're going to keep Mattingly on. Uh, the Jays are going to keep him on regardless, and he's kind of just going to be their advisor slash face. But it seems like they're putting a really strong effort into hiring current baseball personnel and current baseball, you know, front office guys like Dombrowski and now Mattingly. And honestly, Nashville is an awesome town. Um, it's on the it's on the rise, especially baseball wise. So I think they could definitely, you know, get this done, especially with the talks of uh, some big celebrities jumping in to help the funding of I, be, I believe it was two billion dollars they need to raise. Yeah, so we'll see how they sort of handle this and sort and how the cards sort of stack as the future evolves. But I, I just wanted to highlight over that because now you got probably two of the greatest players and two of the greatest, I guess, managerial candidates in Mattingly and Stewart sort of combining for a, a, an area that's heavily favored to have an expansion team. I'm excited about it. Hopefully more things sort of develop throughout the couple next couple months. Um, in, I guess, more negative news, MLB lifted the former Braves uh, GM, John Coppolella, and his uh, suspension. For those who don't know, he was kicked out in 2017 after he, quote, grossly violated rules relating to uh, international signings. And as everybody knows, Alex Anthopoulos took over after he was canned. And I did a little bit of research, and Sports Kita uh, actually had what he did. And I'm just going to paraphrase a little bit. Uh, he violated international signing rules, obviously. He cut illicit pre-draft deals and tampered with players on other teams, that is. And spokespeople with this whole lifting say that he spent more than five years on the li- on the ineligible list. And they, I love this quote. He uh, The contrition that he expressed was a factor in lifting his ban. And then he other, uh, the other steps he took in response. So, Andrew, I got to ask, this is very questionable in terms of why the MLB did this because they were very strong on this to beginning uh, in the beginning that is do you feel like this should have happened should he still be banned what are your you know it's it's funny the tune that that the MLB has taken and how it's I remember when this came down um they were really strong about keeping him out forever and they and they they wanted to I believe it was hand hand the, the Braves like basically a death curse to their farm they, they were all in on getting rid of Capoella and keeping him out. And then all of a sudden, you know, we get, we get a tweet, you know, the other night that it's been lifted over the weekend because he basically let's, let's be honest. He, he begged and apologized, you know, pretty, pre, pretty simple and how, and how it seems like it went down where he just begged his way back in, but it, it's, it's not uncommon. You know, we saw Hinch get, uh, you know, reinstated. We see that Cora got reinstated and they got hired quickly. It was like a drop of a hat, and they were back in. So this this shouldn't surprise us that the MLB does this. You know, they they, they like to flip flop. Um, it seemed like his letter was pretty apologetic. I believe it's in the Athletic, and I was reading of it. But I do expect him to get rehired, and very shortly. You know, we we as I mentioned, Hinch, Cora, Steinbrenner as well. I can't believe we got that one. But I, I think he'll get hired soon, and I think the changing of the international free agency rules kind of paved the way for that to happen. And not for nothing, man. Like, I'll be honest, he, he is a great identifier of talent. He, well, I, I want to say he was responsible for Albies, Acuna, Swanson, Freed, uh, Riley. You know, most of this winning roster for the Braves that's been incredibly successful the last two years is his roster. So, you know, owners across the league are going to see that and say, hey, you know, this guy can win us some games. And at the end of the day, it's a business. You know, there's, there's, not, uh, there's not much morality going around nowadays. So... You're going, to, you're going to see someone hire him really quickly, in my opinion. Right, and I think it all goes back to what you said about the changing of the international period. I feel like, given what he did, and 
this isn't my initial thoughts. I'm just as an outsider, this is what I see. I feel like given everything that's happened so far up to this point in terms of every bit of controversy around the MLB, this is kind of minimal. So maybe they kind of stepped back and was like, <laughs> oh, you know what? This, this sucked at the time. I don't think it's worth an, a permanent ban from baseball, um, <laughs> which begs the question, when's the permanent ban from Pete Rose going to going to be lifted, but that's a discussion for another day and a discussion that MLB officials don't want to have. But yeah, I don't disagree. I definitely believe that he's going to get picked up rap quickly. Um, Like you said, he was responsible for showcasing all that talent and just look at his resume alone. This is just a little bit of a rift in his career. So I think people are going to outweigh pretty much his positives with uh, the negatives that he brings. And they're going to, they're going to put that aside. However, one thing, one person that's not going to find luck in terms of, uh, getting back into the baseball scene, getting back on a team. And I think everybody expected us to discuss this. Trevor Bauer. Um, not going to go into too much details about what all happened. I'm sure everybody knows by now. Uh, but the Dodgers designated him for assignment. They had, I believe, until uh, last Friday afternoon to DFA him or make a, some sort of decision as to what they were going to do with him. And really, this is, you look at this. Um, this is a good PR move, obviously, for the Dodgers. We all, everybody expected them not to keep Bauer on the on the roster, and I think we all can agree that. I mean, it's given everything that's going on, nobody's going to want him unless maybe Andrew, you believe differently. Maybe somebody else will maybe take a gamble on him. I, and I know that there have been rumors already saying that every general manager around the MLB doesn't want to take a gamble on Trevor Trevor Bauer. But I'm thinking more long-term, maybe once the dust settles, they might want to resurrect him, some low team that's not worth competing. But um, do you believe that any team would want Bauer at this point, or do you think his his, uh, career is pretty Yeah, this one is tough, man. You know, we don't have to talk about what happened. We know what happened. Um, Given, you know, 2023, given all the things that have happened societally, it's – it's going to take a lot for any front office to consciously make a decision and say, Hey, we're bringing in Trevor Bauer. You know, it's, it's going to take a lot of convincing. It's going to take a lot of PR. They're going to take a ton of heat and it arguably might be a make or break slash biggest move signing that a GM could possibly make from a, not even from a winning standpoint, just from a overall optic standpoint. Um, He seemed I mean, from everything we read from Nightingale in that USA Today article, he didn't seem to be very apologetic or, you know, remorseful in his interviews with the Dodgers, who actually, supposedly they were giving him a second shot to kind of show remorse, and then they were going to make a decision. But, you know, knowing his personality and what we see on social media and what we've learned about him, he clearly wasn't that, which led to his release. Um, And we've seen some conflict. For the most part, I've read that no front office wants to touch him. But I did see a couple tweets out there from, you know, some of the top reporters that they're that they believe someone will eventually grab him. I don't think it'll be a big market team. I I don't think that it'll be a team that's contending either, nor will it be a team that is located somewhere where it's a more, uh, I want to say, modernized or progressive demographic. But I could see a non-contender. I could see like a Pirates, unfortunately, because that's that's your team. <laughs> a, a Cincinnati Red, a Cincinnati Reds taking another shot at him. And I mean, it's oh man, I I I don't know the thought process that would have to or the meetings that would have to take place in order for a front office to say, yeah, you know, we're gonna do this. Like it's got to be so tough because we know the talent's there. You know, we've seen him on King of Juco, Eric Sims videos throwing 97 still you know and he's obviously going to be doubly motivated so you know what about a royals or a tiger is going out and grabbing him because it'll be headline news you know when he signs obviously and when he pitches but you know when the dust settles you probably could sneak him into one of those teams but to me it's got to be a a bottom a bottom feeder it can't be a team competing for a playoff spot where he's going to be on national tv every fifth day well, I'm going <laughs> to – let's go back to the Pirates in terms of do we think they're actually going to sign him. No, there's no shot because aside from the off-field issues, his ability is good, and the Pirates don't like good ability. We've seen that time and time again. Um, <laughs> but I do agree. I feel like it's he's going to go to a bottom feeder at some point, but you got to put your mind in the – I guess you got to take the place of a general manager 
whether it is from, well, especially a big market team, it's a PR nightmare if you sign Trevor Bauer even to a minor league contract. Like any time, any point, you know, you talk about yep. Team X signing Trevor Bauer immediately, your PR is going to go absolutely out the window. Um, so I guess you've got a example: uh, Deshaun, Deshaun Watson and the Browns. They had the riots up, the pickets outside. Yeah, and I was actually reading. There's actually an article out right now um, by, and I I was just reading it. I clicked off because I'm an idiot. Uh, Deadspin actually had. A, an article about it we're not going to pull anything from there i haven't read it in depth enough to start commenting on it and i don't want to you know make an off-color comment or misinterpret anything from the article so go check that out for yourself guys uh deadspin.com it's on there right now and it sort of compares the two situations but i, I mean yeah it's it's a little different in terms of the overall scenario with watson and bauer because i mean bauer demand or not bauer watson demanded a trade and then all this stuff happened. They finally traded him to the Cleveland Browns. And the Browns, we all know, are – and we're kind of crossing football here. But um, the Browns really don't care about PR, in my opinion. I think because of all the things that have happened in the past, they're so dead set on improving as a team. Look at where that got them this year, though. Um, you know, they, they would do anything they can. They would sacrifice whatever PR they had remaining for a guy like Deshaun Watson. Whereas, you know, the Dodgers, they're kind of – on the hierarchy, you know, toward the top of PR, I would say there's a lot of positive spin behind it. So they had no choice and obviously no team with all of the, I, I guess all the heat that this situation is gaining. They didn't want to trade anything, including a King's ransom for a guy like Trevor Bauer, because that would have looked dumb on their end, not only acquiring Bauer, but trading a King's ransom for him. It would just been awful. So I, I, I agree. Once the, I also, I also think it's – sorry to cut you off. I think it's super tough for MLB also right now because women are finally breaking the glass ceiling and getting into the front office. That It just sets – it sends such a wrong message you know, for a team to, to, to sign him with all this going on. Right, and that's a good point to make. And no, no worries about cutting me off, especially for a point like that. Like that – I think that gets overlooked more than anything nowadays. And you know, I don't want to – comment too much on it because obviously I'm, you know, I'm a guy. So, you know, speaking on behalf of women is, um, you know, it, it's, I, I can't speak for them. Uh, but yeah, like you said, that's a point that a lot of people overlook nowadays is with women in the front office, you can't really put them in that scenario where you bring in somebody like Trevor Bauer, put them on the roster. And, you know, now again, it's just a PR nightmare. Um, and I, I, I hate to pinpoint, exactly what team obviously a bottom feeder would be the one to sign him back. Um, especially if they're in desperate need, but man, I, I can't pinpoint exactly what team that would be because no matter what. It's, it's yeah. So and that's something you can't bounce back from. Like, yeah, it's, I, it's kind of like you made your bed and you're going to have to deal with everything that comes with it. You know, I, I like can right. you imagine the New York Yankees or the New York Mets picking him up and the, the havoc that would happen at his first start. Oh my god, that it would be deafening in all of the worst ways. Mm-hmm. I, <laughs> I, I, I honestly, I, I, I don't even know where, where, like, like I said, I don't, I don't know where a front office can even start that conversation. And I feel like that conversation isn't going to start. I don't, I don't know. I'm, I agree with you to. A I will that. say, if he doesn't get signed, I do think that he tries to sue the MLB. And how do you think that's going to go? I don't think it'll go well uh, because of, you know, the off-field <laughs> stuff. But I think he'll try to sue and file a grievance saying, oh, they're colluding, yada, yada. But let's be honest, if there's ever a reason to collude, it's something like this. Yeah, and I agree. And if I'm not mistaken, and I I, I don't want to speculate, but if I'm not mistaken, the charges were dropped against Bauer, correct? Um, I don't know the exact legal verbiage, but I do believe that they were dropped. Yeah, I, I don't think I ever saw the, the, the word innocent. So, I saw charges were dropped. Right, and that's that's a good thing to preface is that nothing said that he was innocent. It was the charges were dropped. But either way, I think that's going to be the main point that Bauer makes and the main persuasive reason that he sues the MLB, MLB if he does, files a grievance against him. That'll be his main argument is, hey, the charges were dropped. You know, if, if the charges were dropped, you're just punishing me for nothing now. It's going to turn into a whole, uh, pardon my language, but it's going to be a shitstorm. And as a fan, I don't know if I want to see that. 
Um, and, but we all know the MLB does not want to go through that, especially with how, in my opinion, lengthy it's going to be. But that's a story for another day. Let's get off this topic and talk about something a little bit more positive. Uh, the MLB Hall of Fame, uh, the results are rolling in, and I feel like with all the negative controversy that's around the MLB, this is something that um, not too many people are talking about right now. And I, I think it's worth mentioning, we might actually have a Hall of Fame class this year. And I don't know about you, but <laughs> these are two names, well, maybe one of them, that I didn't expect to get into the Hall of Fame ever. And for those who don't know, and this was released today by a couple sources um, after some ballots were turned in, leading the way for the Hall is Todd Helton and Scott Rowland. Helton has 80% of votes, while Rowland currently has 82%. On the cusp of Hall of Fame induction, and I really mean on the cusp, is uh, legend closer Billy Wagner. He's at 73% of the vote. And Andrew Jones, star outfielder, has 71.5% of the vote. And I mean, it's a, they are right there. They're almost in the hall. They just, got, they just need a couple of ballots. Uh, so I got to get your thoughts, Andrew. What are your thoughts, first of all, on Helton and Roland pretty much getting it? Yeah, I, from day one, I remember watching Todd Helton. I was always such a big Helton fan. It's, to me, it's so sad that it's taking him some time because I get it. The cores, you know, the uptick in numbers, but his stats on the road are right alongside his home stats. To me, that speaks volumes. Helton played great defense. He was a leader for the Rockies, and he absolutely raked. I I just I loved every minute of watching him play. I thought he was such a good, you know, solid ball player, ball player, all around talent. He could glove it. Um, to me, he compares right alongside alongside a guy like Eddie Murray, who's in the hall. You know, I I think it's overdue. I agree with him getting in, and I really hope that he gets in. Um, as for Roland, I'm actually surprised he's picked up such a such steam. Um, Roland was always a, an excellent defender, you know, solid bat. I don't know if I ever felt he was a Hall of Famer watching him, but you know, looking back, looking that's now, yeah, you know, you can put him alongside a bunch of other uh, Hall of Famers who are currently in. Um, I, I don't know. Roland just never read as a as a Hall of Famer to me. But, you know, counting stats say otherwise, so I'll stick with that. I, I think he had, what, 300-ish homers. Um, so it, nothing ever screamed Hall of Famer, but it looks like he's pretty safe. Um, to me, this one, Billy Wagner needs to be in the yes. Hall of Fame. Uh, John Heyman is a clown for what he posted about the reason him not voting Billy Wagner in was because of his playoff stats. I think Billy Wagner threw 10 total playoff innings. Those 10 innings should not determine whether or not he's a Hall of Famer. His stats are off the charts in his career. It's not his fault that, you know, did he have a couple blown saves? Yes. Was he a Met for those saves? And I saw it firsthand. Yes, those hurt. But his stats speak volume. He is that good, and he's arguably the greatest left-handed closer of all time. Um, Another one, Andrew Jones should already be in. Andrew Jones was the bane, one of the banes to my existence as a Met fan. But I tell you, watching him play center field <laughs> was art. It was truly mastery of baseball. And to me, he was the greatest defensive center fielder of that generation. And did he have 500 homers, I believe? Yeah, right? I'm looking at his stats right now. He had 434. Okay, four, he was just shy of 500. 400 homers. He won every gold glove ever known to man for 50 years, it felt like. And, you know, he had a handful of all-star teams. He's a Hall of Famer to me. There's no doubt about that one. Um, and then last but not least, Carlos Beltran. <laughs> that's that's going to be the talk of the ballots for a while, I feel. If he wasn't attached to the Astro scandal, I think he'd be trending, you know, over 70% and would likely get in on his first, you know, couple tries. Unfortunate. I'm curious to see what will happen going forward. I think he's almost at like 60% at the moment. So that is a decent sign that the writers are kind of not going to, you know, bang him over the head over it. But I hope he gets in sooner rather than later. I'm going to start. I'm going to start with Scott Rowland because I agree with you. He's one of those guys where you look at him on the field and you go, 
Yeah, he's not really, he doesn't strike me as that Hall of Fame caliber. But then when you look at the stats, it kind of says otherwise. But one thing I'm noticing <clears throat> on baseball reference on his on his page, not once in his career has he finished a season where he led in a statistical category on the base surface. He probably he probably led in some sabermetric wow. category, but considering we want to, you know, sort of include all fans here, I'm going based off, you know, surface level statistics here. And it, it, that inca- that blows my mind. And there was only three seasons where he finished with an with a batting average. No, two seasons where he finished with an average above uh, three hundred, which is surprising. But look at all the awards he's got. He's a multi multi time Gold Glover, multi time All Star, Rookie of the Year in ninety seven. So yeah, he's actually got some work to him in a seventy career WAR. That's that's pretty damn good, if you ask me. And maybe it's one of those things where Scott Rowland had one of the most confusing careers in the MLB and that could be so, but when you look at it, I think, I think he's definitely deserving of being a hall of famer. And to a point I can sort of agree that, you know, it's been a long time coming for him, but I want to go back to Helton because wow, I I think you could probably make a vote or make a a vouch by saying his 2000 season alone probably should grant him hall of fame access. But I think it's his string from 2000 to 2004 that really have uh, really blown my mind. That and he finished second in the year in rookie, uh, second in rookie of the year voting back in '98. Um, so I mean, you look at his career; his numbers are decorated. And I know a lot of people say, "Oh, he was with the Rockies; he didn't do too much." But I mean, Todd Helton was, for for what it's worth, he was a generational first baseman, and he was he joins a very rare club of that middle two th- or middle to late two thousands, early two thousand tens, and. I think another thing that sticks out to me is how loyal he was to the Colorado Rockies franchise. Like he spent his entire career there and normally you don't really see that. Um, So I I think he's definitely worth it too. I heavily agree on Billy Wagner. I feel like if you look, first of all, and we need to address this. And I feel like I say this every podcast, we need to quit listening to John Heyman. I'm I know you have more ties to him because you're a New York guy, but holy shit. Oh my God. He's, he is everywhere for me. I hate it. He is a dud. Like his takes are, they are historically bad. And the fact that he would base Billy Wagner's hall of fame status. Now for those listening, I feel like everybody would say that Billy Wagner deserves to be in the hall of fame playoff or playoff numbers or not. You can't disagree that this guy was an elite closer. And if anybody, including Dud Heyman, wants to say that he doesn't belong in the Hall of Fame, well, he they don't they have no, they they are not a true fan of baseball, and this is another reason why it infuriates me that the writers determine who gets in the Hall, because Billy Wagner sure as hell deserves to be in the Hall of Fame, whether he excelled in the playoffs or in the regular season. I mean, the fact that he, as a closer, all right, finished fourth, top five in Cy Young voting back in 1999 should say something because how many times do we see closers, let alone relief pitchers get, you know, qualified for Cy Young award. You barely see it. He was also six in Cy Young voting back in 2006 with your New York Mets. So, I mean, the fact that this guy could crack that list, have an historic career. And then for clowns like Heyman to say that he doesn't deserve in the hall or belong in the hall. That's just foolish. He deserve he deserved to be in the hall. You want to you want to know what's what's even funnier? So I just pulled up the quote that Heyman posted in his article. He said, "Billy Wagner, amazing strikeout and whip numbers, but didn't quite make it there for being hit hard when it counted most." Then he put the postseason ERA in eleven and a third innings. The funniest part about this is that Heyman voted for Lee Smith to make the Hall of Fame. Lee Smith had an eight plus ERA in the postseason. No consistency. And he'll stand on his word. He'll stand on his soapbox and just be wrong over and over again. And this is why I don't listen to a word that he says, because it's it's stuff like that. And I'm glad you pointed that out because I didn't even know that. And I, it's stuff like that that makes me not even trust his word. But we're getting aside from the point here. It, 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 Billy Wagner deserves to be in the Hall of Fame, and I hope he gets that vote. Again, he's very close to it, and I'm sure he's going to get it once all the ballots are turned in. But if he doesn't, that's that's a crime against baseball. But and touching on Andrew Jones too, the guy's elite, sixty-two point seven career WAR. Uh, this is where a surface level shouldn't really come into play. A two fifty-four lifetime batting average. That's not the greatest, and that doesn't speak Hall of Fame. But you look at his career; he was decorated 
uh, really all of it, but from 97 all the way to 2007, he was winning awards. He's a five-time All-Star. Like you said, he's epic. And I know he was a bane to your existence as a Met fan, but, I mean, you got to give credit where credit's due, and that's exactly what he did. You got you to gotta respect it. Yes. He's, he was watching him play center field, man. It was, it was crazy because it looked like he was playing Rover, and he would, in a blink of an eye, he was catching a ball at the warning track with ease. Kind of like, and I hate throwing this term out loosely, but it's almost like he was ahead of his time in center field. Do you feel that way? Wow. I, that's, honestly, that might be the perfect way to summarize that. I never thought about that until we now. Just really philosophical. <laughs> you know what? That, you got me. I'm speechless. I don't say this often. I'm speechless because <laughs> that was so spot on because I feel like you put him in this era where people are looking at, more the advanced metrics and how much defense and base running factors into it. And he gets elite, elite status. And you just call me the modern day baseball Socrates, but, but yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what you mean. I mean, you, you compare him to some of the guys that are playing today and he, he kind of ranks right up there. So he deserves to be in the hall. In fact, probably more than anybody else that we've just mentioned or anybody on the ballot. I do want to mention, and, and I feel so bad for the guy, but I feel like Jeff Kent, was the redheaded stepchild of the Hall of Fame ballot. He he did have a really good career, but I, I mean I feel like everybody could have understood that he wasn't gonna get in. I just feel bad. We just needed to shout Jeff. Yeah, he's he's such a weird case because he was an incredibly gifted hitter, you know, especially at second yeah. base. He was ahead of he was ahead of the curve in regards to power hitting second baseman, you know, and he protected bonds. I I also do think his relationship with the media kind of crushes him because he wasn't be exactly uh media friendly which speaks to your point before about um it kind of sucking that the media gets all well the baseball writers get all the uh pull on this um i do want to ask you about one we skipped who's currently fourth or fifth gary sheffield what's your take on that oh um i feel like he is worthy of being a fringe hall of famer maybe and i feel kind of bad because we had his son chef jr on the show multiple times but let me pull up his stats here, and I'm not just going to go based off stats. Watching him, you know, just growing up, and I know I caught the tail end of his career, he electrified me. But stats alone, I mean, the guy was a multi-time All-Star. He was in the MVP race, I believe, five or six years, which is a bunch of a bunch of times he was top ten. Yeah, he's over 500 career home runs. Uh, you know what? Yeah, I'll say it and consider this a hot take of mine. I think Gary Sheffield should be in the Hall. Um, he's not a unanimous hall of famer by any stretch of the term, clearly not by the ballot voting, but from a fan standpoint, if I were a baseball writer, I would absolutely vote Gary Sheffield into the hall. Yeah. I I'm actually not sure why he's not in yet because you know, that big threshold of 500 homers, right? Everyone talked about that for so long as why you get in, you know, a guy like Fred McGriff didn't get in because he didn't cross 500. He had to wait until the, 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 the committee this past year. Sheffield surpassed 500. He's almost a 300 career hitter. He's got 20, about 2,700 hits. He stole over 200 bases, and he knocked in 1,600 plus. Um, I think, what is it, nine-time All-Star. He's got a batting title. He's got a World Series. He's got five silver sluggers. Finished top 10, one, two, three, four, five, six different years. I, he should already be in, especially considering some of the people they've already inducted. Yeah, and... Again, I think this is the flaw that you get whenever you just let the writers decide it. Because I feel like if you left it to a fan vote, a manager vote, you know, something a little bit more, I guess, down the middle, if you will. Um, I, I feel like Sheffield and even McGriff would have been a been a Hall of Famer on his first go around. It wouldn't take, it wouldn't help. Even people like Barry Bonds, you would see a guy like him, in, and I know he's controversial, and I know people look at him and say, "Well, the steroid scandal, yada yada yada," but. You got to take credit for what it's worth, and you would see these guys that get omitted from the Hall of Fame. They would be elected their first go around because it's the you know the true vote of the fans. They want to see these people in the Hall because that's who they grew up watching. That's who they think deserves to be in. It shouldn't be left to a bunch of corny writers who, you know, a lot of them are stuffy nowadays. They're like, well, I don't think anybody should make it in, and they, we see a lot of empty ballots. Yeah, those those are crazy. Am I wrong for believing? And I know we're getting off topic a little bit, but am I wrong for believing that if a writer turns in a blank ballot, they should never, ever be considered for Hall of Fame voting ever again? 
Yeah, I, I can, I can, there's only one circumstance I can understand it is that if it's a year where it's so barren and there's not even someone who you could even fathom. But on this ballot, it's not hard to find at minimum half a dozen guys who are worthy of induction. Right. And the fact that there are people and I've seen some comment on Twitter and social media in general from these writers turn in Hall of Fame ballots and they go, you know, some of them are like, well, if we vote on players every year, then we're inducting people who probably don't actually deserve it. Or nobody knows what true Hall of Fame players are nowadays. Well, that's not the point. The determina- the definition of a Hall of Fame player changes with each, I guess, generation. I don't want to say each year, but it, over time, things change and people will determine who should be in the Hall of Fame based on that type of, I guess, the type of generation they played with. And right now we're sort of entering that mid-wave where, you know, you weren't part of like the... Uh, obviously not the steroid scandal. You're not part of the early thirties where there's a lot of players to choose from because of the small sample or the, you know, who they went up against. Now you went up against guys who are starting to see different pitch, uh, pitch types during their career. They are hitting with more, I guess, balanced skill sets. They're not just one determined player. And I feel like that's where a lot of these, I guess, um, boomers, if you will. And I, I throw that term loosely. They're the ones turning in the blank ballot because they can't see oh, you know, this guy wasn't a powerhouse, so he doesn't deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. This guy wasn't like a Ricky Henderson with blinding speed, and he doesn't deserve to be in the Hall of Fame, blah, blah, blah. You got to look, you got to take, you know, look at the class, determine who's good, you know, who I guess was a star during that time and vote based on that. And these guys just aren't doing that. I credit everybody who did turn in a ballot, and I'll even give credit to the guys who at least put one player on their ballot, and that's it, because they at least put somebody down, you know. They, they were real. These guys handing in blank ballots, they don't know what they're talking about. But it's, it is a shame just looking at some of the guys on this ballot. And one thing that really surprises me, and I don't know if it surprises you much, we completely overlook the fact that A-Rod and Manny Ramirez are – they are, <laughs> like, really, really struggling to get votes. And a lot of people, yeah, they'll probably determine it to steroids. But, man, that the era of, like, 2003 to 2008 – that is what made the uh, th- that is what made Major League Baseball was guys like A Rod and Manny going out there hitting bombs and just amping up the co- competition. It's kind of it scares me that they're getting such. Yeah, I think you made two really good points there. Um, first, being about going forward, Hall of Fame thresholds are going to look a lot different. I think we've kind of passed that generation of the three hundred win guy. Um, you know. The 3,000 hits, that's going to be another one that's going to be tough to, to hit, to, to make. You know, there's obviously there's an uptick in homers, so you'll see maybe some 500 homer guys, but those thresholds are going to have to change. You know, you're not going to see as many guys like a DeGrom. DeGrom's a perfect case. He's got Hall of Fame talent, you know, a couple of Hall of Fame years under his belt. He's not going to wins, let's be honest, with his age, injury. You know, does, you know, what do the voters do when his time comes up? So, Hall of Fame voting is going to have to get more progressive and get with the times and kind of these archaic dinosaur voters are going to have to learn that generationally things change. And these, these numbers that they've been focusing on 500 homers, 300 wins, uh, 300 hits, 3000 hits, that's going to have to change. And secondly, A-Rod and Manny were two of the greatest right-handed hitters we have ever seen. Watching them battle it out, you know, for MVP awards or head-to-head in the AL East was some of the most electrifying playoff series, down-the-stretch series, and just downright imposing right-handed hitters. They, they're they obviously Hall of Fame talents, and I believe they're under 50% of the vote, so it's going to be really interesting to track them as the year goes on, as the years go on. Um, I, I believe that A-Rod being in the media might help him eventually, but it seems like they might be guys who are going to have to get in on a really weak year or in the, the veterans committee. I guess we, it's good, good of a time to get to our hot take segment. Uh, we kind of already alluded to a couple of them throughout the show, but Andrew, I'll uh, hand things over to you to give a hot take or two about maybe the off season and the season ahead. What's. Uh... Um, it's a good one. Um, uh... I think we see the Red Sox grab another solid player by a trade. Um, not sure who, but but I feel like this positive momentum with grabbing Devers and uh, extending him. I, I think I think they do grab another legitimately talented player. 
Could it be Correa's? Could it be them uh, sneaking in? Maybe. But I do think they grab another another really solid player. Um, I was actually looking at the rookie of the year stuff coming up. Uh, I, Gunnar Henderson's got to be the guy to win it, right? I, I feel like uh, I was looking at some of the award stuff, and I, I think he's in a prime chance, a prime spot to win it. And thirdly, the Marlins. Um, I think they trade Edward Cabrera and or Sixto Sanchez. I think I, I could see that, especially with Cabrera, because if I'm not mistaken, he's out of options. So they kind of right. they have no other choice but right. to trade him. They're not going to DFA him for somebody to claim. Uh, and I feel like he could be used as viable trade bait. So I think that's uh, definitely good. And Gunnar Henderson, that's a good name. I feel like a lot of people forget about him just based off the club that he's on. Um, I'm definitely keeping him on my Rookie of the Year radar. And it's going to be interesting to see. And I, I think Brian Schoen's going to love what you said about the Red Sox because uh, <laughs> I think he's waiting for Shame to make a big move. Um, I guess my hot takes, I'm going to set her uh, at least one around the Pirates. And I'm going to say that, um, and, and I know there was a lot of talk, talk about it last year that it might happen, but I seriously think it might happen this year. Andrew McCutcheon's going to sign with the Pirates, kind of provide that veteran leadership to the outfield staff and, to me, I don't think the Pirates are quite ready yet to have an outfield of just Reynolds, Bay, and Jack Sawinski. I think they kind of need another veteran out there. And I know they got Connor Joe and they have Miguel Andujar, but I, I really think if they want to make a good PR move, they're going to bring McCutcheon back in. Um, and I guess for my non-Pirates really hot take, I'm going to go back to the Hall of Fame, and I'm going to say, and I'm going to, I'm going to make you a little happy there, Andrew. I think Carlos Beltran is going to really climb the rankings fast. I think once more ballots come in, I think more people are going to set their differences aside and vote Carlos the Hall. So there's some hope there for him. That would, that would be awesome. I, I love the McCutcheon take, by the way, because I think he fits this roster so perfectly from a veteran point, uh, a right-handed bat who he still hits lefties very well. And also, yep. I think – the if you were to host like his first game back or like a McCutcheon day, whatever you want to call it, maybe a bobblehead, that would sell out instantly. And I'm sure you'd be right alongside the rest of the fans lining up and entering the stadium <laughs> that day. But I, I love that one personally, and I'm a huge McCutcheon guy. Obviously, you are. I, I love that take. Yeah, and hopefully it happens. There's still lots of weeks to go, so hopefully things happen. Hopefully we get some more baseball news in the coming weeks. Andrew, before we sign off, why don't you give our listeners your Twitter handle? Yep, uh, Twitter, Akon03, A-K-H-A-N-0-3. And you can follow me at underscore Radio Jake. You can also make sure that you follow at MLB Marathon on Twitter and TikTok as well. Our buddy JT, who was uh, in the listener section for um, a good good amount of time on this podcast, he actually makes a lot of great content for the MLB Marathon TikTok. So go show that some love. Go show our Twitter some love and check us out at MLBMarathon.com. Going to try to pump out some more stories here in the couple of weeks. Um, we have a lot of things that behind the scenes that are coming out. So be on the lookout for that. Be on the lookout and have a conversation with us on Twitter at MLB Marathon. But for Andrew and all of the people that listen to us here at MLB Marathon, I want to thank you all so much for tuning in. This has been another episode of the MLB Marathon podcast. Back in action next Sunday night right here on Spotify Live and wherever you may find your podcast. Folks, have yourself a great week, and we'll see you next time on MLB Marathon.